Good morning, everyone. The uh, Bible reading this morning is, in fact, two Bible readings. The first is Genesis chapter 3, and you'll find that on page 3. And then the second is from the first letter from Paul to Timothy, uh, and you'll find that in, in chapter 1, verse 15, you'll find that on page 1192, 1192. But before I read, let me pray for us all. Thank you, Father, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Open our hearts to receive your word, that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, first reading, Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all wild stock, livestock, and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The second reading as I said, is from Paul's letter to Timothy, 
Uh, first letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Micah, um, as Prash mentioned earlier. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all your promises. We pray that as we uh, look at your word today, that you would give us confidence in all of your promises and hope as we look to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you feel about waiting. It's something we do quite often, isn't it? It's one of the things I think actually as Christians we do the most. We wait for the last day when Jesus will return. We wait for sin and death to be done away with. And we wait for the new world to come, a renewed world. Depending on the circumstances, waiting is not such a bad thing, isn't it? Uh, remember when you're maybe a little bit younger and um, it's the day before Christmas and you've got one more day to wait. There's excitement and anticipation, isn't there? Well, with waiting, I think the problem comes when the time is too long. It's, uh, it's not just a day of waiting. When it becomes more and more and more, there can be disappointment. Will it come? Will it happen? Will the time be fulfilled? Over the time of um, Advent, as we lead up to Christmas, we'll be thinking about how the promises of God, uh, the promises that He made and He fulfills them, and often, that time of waiting can be a very long time. Well, in Genesis 3, we just heard about the worst tragedy in all human history. Humanity's fall into sin, where Adam and Eve listened to the serpent's temptation and lies and disobeyed God. Even though God had uh, made the world good, He'd made Adam and Eve in His glorious image. He'd given them life, food, everything they need, and even appointed them with a special relationship as rulers over his creation, a special relationship to him. And he gave them one command. He said, you can eat everything in the garden, everything that I've created, you can enjoy the whole thing, but there's one thing you can't do. You can't eat from one tree. And it's not just a, an arbitrary command either. This is about giving Adam and Eve a way to show God that he is their God by obeying it. But the serpent came along and he said to Eve, look how good the fruit looks. Look, it will make you wise. God doesn't want you to have it. He's tricked you. He doesn't want you to become like him. And this is quite deceptive, isn't it? 
they've had everything they need given to them, everything they could ever want. And the serpent's temptation fixates them on the one thing they couldn't have, as if it's everything. And so they listened to the serpent as if God had lied to them. They obeyed the serpent as if he was God, and so fell into sin and corruption. But then, much to our surprise, in verse 15, we get the first glimmer of hope, a promise for a solution given by God, a promise to eagerly wait for. It's actually a startling show of undeserved grace. He rebukes the snake and says to it in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is promising here is that a child, an offspring of the woman will be born who will be an an enemy of the snake rather than someone who listens to the snake and that that offspring will in some way crush the serpent's head while at the same time being struck. It's a little bit of a shadowy promise, isn't it? And that's often how we find God's promises in the Old Testament. They seem a little bit shadowy to us, but as time goes on, uh, they become clearer as we see them being fulfilled. And, but that time for God's people wasn't here yet. The wait had just begun. As history went on, the question was, when would this serpent crusher come? As each notable figure arose, the question was, is this him? Is this the person we're waiting for? Cain and Abel are born, and the offspring of the woman, and we ask, is their firstborn Cain? Is, is he the one? But what we see is, instead of crushing the serpent, Cain ironically crushes his own brother, Abel. And that causes uh, Cain to be sent away even further from the presence of the Lord and marked by sin. And we see generation after generation, sin increasing and the effects of it corrupting humanity and God's world more and more. But eventually Noah, he appears and the expectations are really, really high. Noah is is a righteous man and the flood comes and remakes the world. Is this the solution? Is the world now, is, is sin done away with? But we find out actually, even with Noah and his family, sin continues in them. The world wasn't the problem, it was sin in the people. And as each figure arises in the Bible, we've got Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, all glimpses of hope, but none of them could stand against the serpent expectation and disappointment. How long, God, till you fulfill your promise? Will it even come? Is there reason to doubt God? About seven years ago, my brother married his wife. She was uh, from Manipur in India, and they met while she was at Bible college. Anyway, they uh, got married and applied for a spousal visa to come to Australia. And in the meantime, uh, my brother decided, well, we'll just stay in India um, with your your village for a little while while we're waiting for it to be approved. And he's pretty resourceful. He picked up a bit of work and began waiting and waiting and waiting. One month turned into two months and two into six and six into a year and one year slowly turned into two. (laughs) And I remember chatting to him as he longed desperately, 
just for something Australian, Australian TV, Australian food, even a conversation about Australian sports, which he didn't enjoy. Just anything to resemble home. Waiting without knowing if and when the visa would be approved. But the time eventually came, and great excitement. I just remember them feeling so excited, they got the letter saying, yes, you can come. And they couldn't wait to get on the plane and come home to see family. At the time of Christmas, we remember when the wait was over. We remember the birth of the snake crusher, the hope of salvation promised all the way back in Genesis. This is how the Gospel writer Luke in chapter 2 describes it. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest there was no guest room available for them. Luke describes the humility of this scene. Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph in a manger because there's nowhere else to stay. This doesn't really exactly sound like the sort of person who would destroy evil, who would crush the serpent's head, does it? A helpless baby in a manger with questions of legitimacy of the birth even hanging around as rumours. Is this really how someone so important is supposed to arrive? arrive? There's great expectation on him to take the throne of Israel as their mighty and everlasting king and to bring all the nations under God. But as we read in the Bible, his life didn't seem really like that at all. He was rejected by his own leaders and eventually put to death by the Romans like a common criminal on a cross. Does Jesus really fulfill the promise of Genesis 3? In the Bible, the serpent is eventually identified as the devil, and he's given a few different titles which describe what he does and the power he has. Jesus calls him the father of lies, and as we saw in Genesis, he's described as a deceiver and a tempter. But he's also called Satan, which is a term, a title, which means accuser. In a sense, it's a little bit like uh, the prosecutor in a court of law. He um, prosecutes the, the defendant to the judge. But the difference being, Satan does this out of evil and malice. It's not a legitimate office for him. In Job, we, we see this, actually, don't we, as, he, as uh, Satan comes into the heavenly courts and he accuses Job to God. Um, he says, does Job actually obey and respect you for, for good reason. He's only doing this because you bless him. So the devil is an accuser. He begins by tempting us through his lies to obey God, uh, to disobey, sorry, God. This is what we saw in Adam and Eve in Genesis. And then once we give in, he accuses us by our own actions. And we know this experience all too well, don't we? We, we often feel uh, tempted by things that we think will make us feel good. If only I had this or that, if only I did this or that, that would fix everything. 
it's not that bad anyway, it will make me so happy. I know the Bible says I shouldn't do it, but surely God would want me to be happy. If only I ate that fruit, it would make me wise. This is what Satan wants. He can't wait for us to believe his lies so that he can accuse us by what we do. He accuses because we've sinned against God. So how did Jesus, who was rejected by his own nation and died on a Roman cross, fulfill God's promise? How did he help us with the accusation of the devil? Colossians 2, which uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, if you remember, verse 14 says, Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When Jesus died on the cross in such an unexpected and seemingly unexceptional way, it was that moment that he crushed the serpent's head and suffered a blow to his heel. What seemed like weakness was earth-shattering and changed everything. The power and authority of the devil to accuse was disarmed because Jesus paid the legal debt. Any punishment we might have deserved was paid, so any reason the devil might have to accuse is done away with. The debt paid, the record removed. It was on the cross that Jesus crushed the serpent's head. The accuser can no more accuse when we turn to Jesus. This is why we remember Jesus' birth. It's the moment that he entered the world, it was the beginning of all of that. Do you want to be free from the accusation of the devil? When you put your faith in Jesus and confess your sins, the charges are dropped. In 1 Timothy, we read the words of the Apostle Paul, who is self-confessedly the worst sinner, uh, the worst of sinners, a man who persecuted God's people, who approved of putting them to death, who tried to force them to renounce their faith and blaspheme against God, and he chased them all over the countryside. He eventually came to follow Jesus, and he says, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for me... But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I've had conversations every now and then with people who have said things like this before, which is very sad. Micah, I can't come to Jesus yet. I need to sort my life out first. My life is too much of a mess God wouldn't accept me. But what Paul is saying here is, Jesus didn't come for those who have their life completely together. That's just a story we tell ourselves. Jesus came to save sinners. None of the great figures that we had our hopes 
you know, ready for in expectation that they would crush the serpent's head. None of them were good enough. All of them were slaves to sin and needed Jesus. Paul says, look at me, I'm the worst of sinners and and Jesus forgave me. He did this so you can know he'll forgive you too. Turn to him. Friends, there's nothing that you can do in your own effort to stop the devil's accusation except come to Jesus. You don't sort your life out first. You have a debt and you need it paid and only Jesus can pay it. A man named Philip Graham Riken wrote, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is for bad people. In one way or another, every other religion says people can become good enough for God. But what if we're not good enough? What then? What if we really are the worst of sinners? Then Christianity is the only religion that offers real help. If we are wretched sinners, then Christianity is the only option. Jesus Christ is the only one that can and will save us because he came into the world to save sinners. At the time of Christmas, we are reminded that God fulfills his promises. In the Garden of Eden, the world was was thrown into sin and the devil was given an opportunity to accuse. But God made a promise for a solution that often felt like it took a long time. But God fulfilled his promise. He sent his son, Jesus, to crush the serpent's head. At the beginning, remember, I mentioned that uh, Christians are people who still wait. One of the things we do most is we wait. We wait for God to fulfill his promises. We wait for the last day when Jesus will return. We wait for sin to be done away with and a renewed world. Sometimes that waiting can feel like a very long time. Will it come? Is there reason to doubt God? Will he fulfill his promises? Don't despair when the time is long. God has already shown in Jesus that he keeps his promises. Instead, rejoice that in Jesus the devil can no longer accuse us. Rejoice that God does fulfill his promises. At Christmas we remember that we're not waiting in vain. We remember Jesus, the Son of God, our Saviour. The time might feel long, but the promise is sure. So this Christmas, let's wait with hope that God will fulfill all his promises because he's kept them before.